we have no answer to the question why we should gain from Christ's reward other than your affection for us. And Lord, there is so many things to be seen at the cross. There we see your holiness and your hatred of sin. There we see your forgiveness and grace. But there we also see your your justice. And that while you desired to forgive us and show your grace and your mercy to us in forgiving our sins, there still had to be payment. There still had to be punishment. And so in great love, you, you sent your son to die on the cross. And Lord, may we see there that it is not just it is not just um, mercy that is given. It is not just grace that is given. It's not just justice that is met. But it is your glory that is repaired. And Lord, we have, we have sinned against the infinite dignity of your holiness and your power. So it's not just forgiveness that you have accomplished there, but you have glorified yourself, repairing all that we have done to defame you. Lord, may we see in the whole package of what is done at the cross your affection for us, because it was your affection that moved you to send your son for us as we know that, um, that you so loved the world that you sent your Son. And so while we were yet sinners, you, you planned redemption, you accomplished redemption, you have called us to redemption. And the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And you, as the sovereign God, have accomplished everything else. Lord, as we turn now to your word, we ask for for open eyes and hearts to be able to see it, to understand it, to obey it, to delight in you, to understand the temporal nature of, of things in this world and our proneness uh, to, to attach ourselves to them and to look to them for hope. But we're, we're commanded in your word to pray for all rulers and officials in high places. And, and the prayer that you have attached to that First Timothy is that we might live quiet and peaceable lives. Lord, would you help us to, to live quietly and peacefully in this world, but boldly with the gospel? Lord, would you give us wisdom to save the offenses that we are uh, willing to make to, to be things that are, are related to the gospel? Lord, as we pray on this Religious Freedom Sunday, we pray that you would give us, uh, continue to grant us religious freedom. But Lord, we must confess, even as we think of that, of the, um, of the way we have abused it by, by failing to share the gospel. You've given us incredible freedom to, to speak the truth of the gospel into the world we sit so silently. 
while churches that are persecuted throughout the world share boldly. Lord, may we be obedient to to the call to share the gospel uh, before we suffer, before we are afflicted, before we are persecuted. May we live quiet and peaceable lives in this life so that we can speak the truth of the gospel into a lost world. Lord, we pray also this morning for the Sorensons and for uh, the many requests that they have um, shared with us, Lord, as well as uh, the praises. We thank you um, for, for the joy that they've had in their return to Uganda and connecting with friends. Lord, I have prayed for that and I'm grateful that you have answered it. Lord, we thank you for the new cafeteria and kitchen building there at the Bible College. And Lord, we thank you for the seven students who were able to graduate um, as they've uh, used means of distance learning to continue to, uh, to educate. Lord, would you use these, uh, these students as they go forth to lead your church to, uh, to bring great health and life and witness to your church there? Lord, we pray that you would provide uh, caregivers for Ruth while Skip travels and we think of her health. And, um, and, and Lord, we just ask that you would help them to, uh, to become accustomed and accommodated to the changes that are, uh, that are going on there as her health declines. Lord, we pray for new graduates uh, as they begin to minister in difficult places, that they would be bold with the gospel. Lord, would you show us and teach us today to place our hope solely and entirely in you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two certainties in life, as the saying goes. Anybody want to fashion a guess as to what they are? Death and taxes, we don't have to guess. We all know, right? The two certainties in life are death and taxes. I think this is entirely untrue. Uh, to stand in, uh, in contrast to the idea that everyone dies is Enoch and Elijah, who did not die but were taken to heaven. And yet to stand against that truth is the final generation of believers when Christ come who will be raptured and removed from the earth in the same way that Enoch and Elijah were. Maybe up to this point, only two people in all of history have not avoided death. But there will be a generation, an entire generation of believers that avoids death. It is also not true that that everyone pays taxes. I'm sure that for everyone who is caught cheating on their taxes, there are some who get away with it. I tried to think of an example of people who do not pay taxes at all. The only thing I could come up with is the natives on Sentinel Island off the coast of, I believe it's uh, uh, India, who recently killed a missionary there. The two certainties in this life are not death and taxes. I think what the book of Daniel teaches us, as we're going to for the next uh, eight weeks, including this Sunday, take a look primarily at the first half of Daniel, is that the one certainty in life is change. For some of you, that might be really good news. And for some of you, that might be really bad news. Maybe some of you are desperate for change. You're, you're desperate for your spouse to change or your children, or your parents, or you can't wait to move out. And maybe some of you are afraid of it. I think maybe 
There's no place in the world that hates change more than the church. When the songs we grew up with aren't being sung anymore, we don't like change. When the best reason we can give as to why we do something in the church is because we've always done it that way. Tradition becomes law. Change becomes fearful. And to be entirely honest, this is really understandable. This is really understandable. For those of you in the room who are young, your life is changing fast. And it's exciting. And you're always looking for the next thing. And you're, you're growing up in a world that changes faster than any time in history. And change at this point in your life doesn't seem so scary. On the other end of the spectrum, everything is changing. The way you bank, the way you drive, the way you make a phone call, the way you pay your bills, the way you give your offering to the church. It's all changing. And sometimes we just want the church to be the one place in our lives that isn't changing. But the book of Daniel reminds us that change is inevitable. There was a time... Not long ago, when we consider how long history is, where, where the piano and the organ were once new. Where hymns were, were scandalous. Uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? They, they, were, um, they, they were, really what they were is bar tunes being, uh, being used in the church. It was scandalous. Someday, guitars and drums will be old. Things change. And change makes us nervous. If you don't think change makes you nervous, what about a change in presidents? What about declarations of emergency powers? Online classes? Masking policies? Viruses? Etc., etc., etc. How do we survive all this? How do we stay faithful in a world that's changing faster than it ever has? Enter the book of Daniel. We're going to see how, how Daniel teaches us to live faithfully in the world. Daniel, the book of Daniel, is the shortest major prophet. I would highly encourage you to read it. We're not going to take the time to read the whole book today, but I will uh, recap the book for you. It is, it is the shortest of the four major prophets, uh, so-called, excuse me, so-called not because of their importance, but because of their length. Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah far exceed the other prophetic books in Scripture in length. But Daniel is the shortest, only 12 chapters, and it does not take that long to read. The first six chapters contain six stories. And as we look at this series in the world, that's going to be our primary focus, it is this recording of history of what happened in the life of Daniel. These first six chapters are written primarily in, in Aramaic, not in Hebrew, that was the land of Babylon where Daniel was in exile. We'll get more into that in, in a little bit. And it is primarily written in the third person. Like Daniel is not writing about himself, 
but somebody else is writing about Daniel. The last six chapters are primarily uh, visions of, of God um, to Daniel about the future. They are written in the first person, and they are written in Hebrew. Thank you, Bradley. They're written in the first person. So now Daniel is talking about I and me and we, and it is primarily written in Hebrew. Uh, We looked a little bit last week at the timeline of biblical history and where Daniel fits in. And if you wanted to see that, if you were not here, uh, whether that be in person or online, you could look at last week's service on YouTube and about the 28-minute Mark, 28 minutes and 45 seconds, we begin to recount the history of Israel. I looked at how long it was, and yikes, it took me 20 minutes when I had planned for 10. No wonder the service was so long. But the bottom line is is, uh, the nation of Israel was the descendants of a man named Abraham. And God had made a promise to Abraham to, to, uh, to take his family and to make them a nation. It is the nation that we know of as Israel even today. And he made a promise to Abraham. Three promises. Land, seed, blessing. Land, lineage, and blessing. That they would bless the whole world and that they would be blessed. These same three promises are not given to the church. So we have to be careful with that. The church has never promised land Churches, however, promise blessing and to be a blessing. But, but Israel is unfaithful to God. That is the ultimate story of Israel's position. Quickly deserting God, rebelling against God, uh, uh, worshiping other gods, complaining. It's interesting to me in 1 Corinthians when Paul wants to pick on all of the sins of the nation of Israel, the primary complaint he picks on, or the primary sin that he picks on is their complaint. Do you understand the sinfulness of complaint? I think today's sermon will bear out why it's such a a heinous sin to God. Because fundamentally when we complain, we're telling God, he got it wrong. God, you got my circumstances wrong. You got my life wrong. You got this situation wrong. But because the nation of Israel is unfaithful to God, because they serve other gods, because they, uh, they, they've abandoned the worship of the one true God, God says, I'm going to send you into exile. And last week we saw that the nation of Babylon sweeps in, captures Israel, destroys Jerusalem, and hauls people, not everybody, but several, a, a bunch of the people in the nation of Israel off into captivity. And that is where we pick up in chapter 1 in the book of Daniel. And in chapter 1, I'm just going to recount for you the, the basic themes of each chapter of the book. In chapter 1, we find four young Jewish men, Daniel, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You probably know the latter three better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three young men, as we're told here in the book of Daniel, youths were hauled off into captivity uh, to serve in the court of the king. 
Based upon the description of their age and what we know of history, it is likely that these four young men were about 15. If I might get on a soapbox for a minute, why, why do we have such low expectations of 15-year-olds? Why do we think they can't sit under the preaching of the word? Why do, they, why do we think that they, like, like the 15-year-old disciples who followed Jesus, aren't capable of turning the world upside down? We should never think that it is age that makes one capable, but the size of the God that they serve. Stop having such low expectations. But they're hauled off into captivity, and they're being trained in the service of the king, and everything about their life changes. Their location changes. Their language changes. Their education changes. Their occupation changes. And yet, when it comes time to change their diet, they refuse. It's not about diet. We'll look at that later. It's really about faith. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the king in, in Babylon, has a dream that he wants interpreted. But he doesn't want anybody to try and trick him. So he gathers all of his sorcerers and wise men and magicians, and he says, I've had a dream. Really, it's more of a nightmare. And, and I, you have to tell me the interpretation. But, but to put you to the test so that I know you're not trying to trick me in interpreting my dream, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You have to... You have to tell the dream and the interpretation. And if you don't, you're going to die. Of course, none of them are able to. And when the servant of the king shows up to execute Daniel, Daniel wisely says, hold on a minute. I can tell the king. And he goes and he tells the king. And Daniel is able to tell both the dream and the meaning of the dream to the king. In chapter 3, Daniel's friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refuse to worship the king and are thrown into a fiery furnace. In chapter 4, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's pride gets the better of him. He has set himself up as, as this deity, as this great ruler, and we're going to look more at that uh, today. But ultimately, God disciplines him, which leads to his repentance. In chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar is no longer the king. Now Belshazzar, one of his offspring, is the king, and he's throwing a religious feast. It's more like a wild party. And at this wild party, they're using goblets, cups, taken out of the temple in Israel to drink wine. And, and a hand appears in the room and writes on the wall a message that nobody can understand. And they need an interpretation. Who do they call? They call Daniel. He interprets the, the dream, and that night Belshazzar dies and his kingdom is removed from him. Chapter 6 is probably the most famous story in Daniel. Daniel refuses to stop praying to God and worshiping God and, and only to worship and pray to the king, and Daniel refuses to obey. As such, he is thrown into a den of lions, and God saves his life. One of the things that's easy to miss here, if you don't look at the history of the book, is how much time has gone by. In chapter 1, Daniel is 15 years old, or thereabouts, and being hauled off to, uh, to Babylon, the, the capital city of this Babylonian empire. 
In chapter 6, when he's put in the lion's den, he's 80. He's 80. He's an old man when he's being thrown in the lion's den. It's 65 years from, from Daniel 1 to Daniel 6. Your flannel graphs that have this young boy being thrown into a den, they're all wrong. Throw Daniel away and get an old man out from somewhere else in your flannel graph and use, use him. Daniel lived a faithful life. King after king after king after king. Many of whom sought not only his life, but the life of his friends. And for 65 years, he lived faithfully. We have something to learn from Daniel. In chapters 7 and 8, it's it's all about the rise and fall of of earthly kingdoms. We're not going to focus much on on this part of the book of Daniel. But if you take the, the, uh, the date that Daniel was written and follow history for 600 years afterwards, he gets kingdom after kingdom after kingdom right down to the tiniest detail. It's incredible. If you want to know how the Roman Empire, how Alexander the Great, how his four generals and the four kingdoms that came from them, uh, how, how uh, Greece, and I mean, if you want to know how all of that is predicted in the book of Daniel, come see me. I'd be happy to show it to you. It's remarkable. Chapter 9 is a long prayer of, of Daniel as he confesses his own sin and the sin of, of, uh, of his people. There are some who say Daniel is the only character in Scripture other than Jesus of whom we are not shown sin, but that's simply not true because in Daniel 9.20, he says that he is praying and confessing his own sin. And then chapters 10 and tw- uh, through 12, the last three chapters, is Daniel writing about visions of the end times. And there's remarkable similarity and alignment between Daniel's visions in chapters 10 uh, through 12 and the revelation of John. But in order to stand, understand, so that's, that's the big picture of the book of Daniel. In order to understand this book, as we begin this series, I want us to look at two themes in Daniel today. Number one is shifting kingdoms. And number two is the sovereign God, shifting kingdoms and the sovereign God. The reality is that we easily put our hope in earthly identities, people groups, our national interests, political parties. We tie our hope, we tie our happiness, we tie even our security too often to our citizenships as Americans. The Constitution and not Christ becomes the ground for our security. We consider more the decisions of supreme courts than the supremacy of Christ. And there's no hope there. There is hope in Christ. Daniel is set during the reign or during the Babylonian Empire, particularly the beginning with the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon is the capital city of the empire, also called Babylon. And it is, uh, history records for us that the city of Babylon was one of the most incredible, glorious cities of the ancient world. In fact, probably considering technology of the day, it may well be the most glorious city that has ever existed. This is documented not only in scripture, but in history. The Babylonian Empire had been in decline for centuries. But but under King Nebuchadnezzar, this king who would haul off Judah into captivity, uh, the Israelites into captivity, it, it reached its peak. It reached its glory days. 
Chapter 4, verse 30, records for us the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. One night as he's walking on the roof of the palace, uh, he says to himself, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? This is very God-type language. Now, while Nebuchadnezzar's pride in himself is wrong, his, his understanding of the city might not be. Uh, even the ruins of Babylon today, near modern-day uh, Baghdad, are, are over 2,000 acres. Ancient Greek writings show that the Hanging Gardens of, of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, built probably for one of Nebuchadnezzar's wife. Nebuchadnezzar built 50 temples to to himself probably and maybe to some other deities in the city, some of them reaching 300 feet high. Around the wall or around the city was this incredible wall. uh, It was a complex wall with eight gates throughout the wall and the wall was vibrantly decorated in red, white, Like most empires, they didn't just want to spread their rule, but also their religion. And in that day, when one nation conquered another, it was because their gods were stronger than the gods of the nation that they conquered. And so when Nebuchadnezzar attacks Israel, and he takes, in chapter 1, all of the, uh, the, the... cups and, and all of the articles for service in the temple out of the temple in Jerusalem and hauls them back to, uh, to Babylon and puts them in the temple of his God, it is this statement that we are more powerful than you and our gods are more powerful than your gods. It's not just uh, military might, it's religious might that they want as well. And Babylon's splendor shouldn't be lost on us. But neither should its shifting nature. Because it's not permanent. You can go visit Babylon today and it's in ruins. Nebuchadnezzar, this great king who did all this for the glory of his might, he died in 562 B.C. Some of the kings who followed him are recorded in the book of Daniel. The first four chapters of Daniel is all under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, a fairly long reign. But in chapter 5, we have Belshazzar, who, like Nebuchadnezzar, was a Chaldean. It's another word for Babylonian, and that's one of the words you'll find in the book of Daniel. He's a Chaldean, and he's reigning as Nebuchadnezzar was. But by the time you get to chapter 6, the king in Babylon is now Darius, and Darius is not a Chaldean. Darius is a Mede. Daniel's still in exile, but kings have died. And this nation is now being ruled by another nation. By the end of Daniel, even though he's mentioned right at the beginning of chapter 1, Cyrus is ruling. And Cyrus is neither a Chaldean nor a Mede, but a Persian. In the 65 years that the book of Daniel covers, we not only have kings who come and go, but kingdoms who come and go. 
This shouldn't surprise us. Chapter 2, this dream of Nebuchadnezzar, this is what it's all about. His dream is of this gigantic statue made of uh, several materials, a, a head of gold, and that represents Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And then as you move down the statue, it's made of bronze, and then, which is probably the Medo-Persian empire represented by uh, Darius and Cyrus. And then you have legs of silver. This is Greece. And then you have feet of clay and iron, which is the first Roman empire and the yet-to-be revised Roman empire that we read about in Revelation and also in Daniel. But what, what we must not merely focus on in this dream is these, this statue in the different kingdoms, because his dream does not end there. In this dream, a rock comes out of heaven and crushes the statue, and all of the materials are turned to powder. And the rock grows until it fills the whole earth. And Daniel tells us that this is an eternal kingdom. This, of course, is the kingdom of Christ, and we'll come to that. But chapters 7 and 8 are Daniel's vision about a ram and a goat. Again, the meaning of these, and I could show you that some other time, is that kingdoms come and kingdoms grow, go. Babylon rises. The Medo-Persian Empire rises. The Greek Empire rises. Alexander the Great dies. His empire is split up into four generals. The Roman Empire rises. And now we're waiting for that revised Roman Empire. uh, Chapters 10 through 12 reinforce the same theme. From Daniel 1 to Daniel 12, the theme is that change is inevitable. Mark Dever said, Kingdom after kingdom in the book of Daniel, including the most powerful kingdoms and the most powerful kings, seem to bear the sign over them that say, This too shall pass. If your hope is in America, or a political party, or a person, or an agenda, any person other than Christ, and any kingdom other than God's, its banner over it is, this too shall pass. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, where do you exercise authority? In the church? At home? At work, where do you exercise authority? Daniel reminds us that God has delegated that authority to you. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. He, that is God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. But, but maybe more important than, than where do we exercise authority and understanding that, that that is shifting authority and that all authority and rule belongs to God, not to Nebuchadnezzar, not to Belshazzar, not to Cyrus or Darius or Alexander or Caesar or you or I. But the bigger question is, where do you find your hope and security? Do elections and news headlines worry you? Do you think America would be a better place if it went backwards or forwards? Do you worry about the economy? The reality is kingdoms come and kingdoms go. So do nations, presidents, rulers, and economies. But Daniel reminds us that there is a kingdom 
coming that will crush all other kingdoms, that will fill the earth, that will never be crushed and cannot be crushed, and that will never fall. And it is the kingdom where you should find your hope. And the reason we should find their hope, our hope there is because though part of Daniel is that kingdoms are shifting, the final word of the book of Daniel is not that kingdoms are shifting, but rather that God is sovereign. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but God is sovereign. This is the ultimate theme of the book of Daniel. Buckle up as we move fast. We see this in almost every chapter. Daniel chapter 1 verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his, that is Nebuchadnezzar's hand. It's not Nebuchadnezzar that conquered Judah. It is God who delivered Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 2 verse 21, a verse we have already seen. He, that is God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Daniel chapter 2, verse 37. This is Nebuchadnezzar's words right right after Daniel interprets his dream. He says, you, O king, king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, all the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. I, didn't, I think maybe I said that's Nebuchadnezzar's words. This is Daniel's words to Nebuchadnezzar. That he, the king of kings, not to be confused with God, but Nebuchadnezzar is literally a king over kings. It is the God of heaven who has given him the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. It is God into whose hand he has given them. God is still in control. Nebuchadnezzar's words, um, or I mean God's words to Nebuchadnezzar, right after that, Daniel 2, verse 45, just as you saw that a stone, this is in the dream, that stone I was talking about, was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. This kingdom that crushes all other kingdoms. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. God will set up a kingdom. It will be the only uh, uh, eternal kingdom. And, And right now that kingdom is in the hearts of people. But it will be eternally in the new heaven and the new earth. Daniel chapter 2, verse 47. Then the king, that is Nebuchadnezzar, answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Daniel chapter 3, verse 29. Nebuchadnezzar's decree. Therefore I make a decree Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn from limb to limb and their house laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Daniel chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. King Nebuchadnezzar in a decree to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. 
At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. This is after God's discipline of Nebuchadnezzar and we'll get to, uh, in a few weeks to what that looked like. looks like. And I blessed the Most High God and praised and honored him who lives forever. These are Nebuchadnezzar's words. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Daniel chapter 5, verse 21. He was driven from among the children of mankind. This is uh, Daniel's words to Belshazzar about Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Daniel chapter 6, verse 26. After the lion's den, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. Daniel 7 is a vision of God's ruling throne in heaven. Whether it's in Daniel or in Revelation, the point of the throne is not the furniture. The point of the throne is the ruler on the throne. Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, and the king shall do as he wills. This is the king of the eternal kingdom. This is Jesus Christ. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things. Again, or actually, maybe this is the, um, uh, the uh, Antichrist here. Uh, against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what, it, what is decreed shall be done. In other words, as Daniel predicts the reign of the Antichrist yet to come, Notice the way he speaks of it, that the Antichrist will only prosper until the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed, in other words, what is decreed by God shall come to pass. The future king, Jesus, will reign forever and he will do as he pleases. Church, do not put your hope in kingdoms or nations. The red, white, and blue has risen and fallen before. And it will rise and fall again. Put your hope in Christ. Put your hope in his kingdom. Put your hope in the one who decrees the beginning from the end, whose kingdom, though at this point, is not of this world. That's what he told us. My kingdom is not of this world. And his kingdom, as far as this absolute rule and reign, other than the millennium in Revelation, will not be eternally until this world is undone and a new one is made. His kingdom, this side of heaven, is, is in the hearts of people. 
His reign eternal, his kingdom unshifting. The question, how do we live faithfully until, until then? Well, that's what we're going to see over the next seven weeks. We've seen very little of the person of Daniel today. But this is the overarching theme of the book of Daniel. The kingdoms shift, but God is sovereign. We're going to examine his life and the life of his three friends in the coming weeks. But the ultimate question before us is not how do we live faithfully in this life? The ultimate question is what will you do with the knowledge that God rules all things? Will you, like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, be prideful and raise yourself up against his kingdom? They fell. You should not presume your end would be any different. Or will you, like Daniel, confess your sin and humble yourself before the ruling God? Daniel 9, verse 20, a verse I referenced already. Daniel says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before Yahweh my God for the holy hill of my people. Will you today align yourself with the kingdoms of this world or with the kingdom of the King of Kings? Listen to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was pre- presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be Destroyed. This Son of Man is Jesus, the one who came to bear our sins to death at the cross. We come into his kingdom through faith and repentance, and that does not change. We continue, not that we keep ourselves saved, but that posture of faith in him and repentance of sin does not change. I beg of you today, leave behind the kingdoms of this world and take up your citizenship in a kingdom that is unshifting, unshaking, cannot be destroyed, that will crush every other kingdom, including this one, the United States of America. By faith and repentance, align yourself with the King of Kings. Believer and unbeliever of like, alike, will you today trust him and his rule alone? Lord, we are so blessed and privileged to live in a place where there is freedom. But our hope is often shifting. Our kingdoms rise and fall, but your word remains. You you are the Lord who declares the end from the beginning. You are the Alpha and the Omega. And Lord, may we in great delight 
and joy, knowing your love for us and, and what you did at the cross to, uh, to, to bring us into your kingdom. Would you, would you help us, aid us, give us the desire to bow before no other king or no other kingdom? Not even in our hearts or minds, other than you. May we see in all of the events of history the certainty of change and the shifting of kingdoms. Except yours. Because you are the sovereign God who rules over all things. Lord, we, we confess that, that we, we do fear the change that we so often see around us. We fear that it's not good for, um, for society. We fear sometimes that it's not good for us and our comfort. Maybe some of us fear that it's not good for the church. But nothing catches you off guard. This was never intended to be a, a permanent kingdom. Lord, let us not take it for granted. Let us not neglect worship and fellowship and prayer and evangelism because, because it's just easy here. And Lord, if, if taking this kingdom from us is what is required for us to cling to yours, I ask that in great grace and kindness you would do that. Lord, none of us want that. I don't want that even as I pray it. But more than that, Lord, I don't want us to cling to that which fades, to that which will become powder in the wind to that which will be crushed by the kingdom of Christ. Lord, may our hope be set in him. May our future be seen secure in his kingdom so that our hope for the future, both in this life and the next, will not and cannot disappoint. Lord, may we willingly and willfully bow the knee and surrender to you, the sovereign and good God, was willing to become one of us, to die for us, to redeem us from, from all of these things that, that cannot save. Lord, let us cling to, to Christ and find our hope there. We ask it all for your glory. In Jesus' name.